0: Holy Gospel according to St. John, the 17th chapter, beginning with the 20th verse. Glory to you, O Lord. Jesus prayed, I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. As you, Father, are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, so that they may be one, as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become completely one, so that the world may know that you have sent me, and have loved them, even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that those also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Righteous Father, the world does not know you, but I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made your name known to them, and I will make it known, so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. You may be seated. Before we pray and leap into the Word today, um, I'd just like to take a point of privilege here. Uh, Our church newsletter always comes out the first of the month, so it will be coming out in the next couple of days. Uh, I wrote, uh, as I always do, my pastor's column for that. And uh, because I'm never too sure how many people actually get, much less read our newsletter, uh, I wanted to make sure that I read my thoughts to you uh, this month in particular Uh, while we are all gathered here in worship. Uh, After that, uh, we will pray, and then we will leap into God's Word. In the wake of the recent mass shootings in Buffalo, New York, and Uvalde, Texas, where 10 people and 21 people died, respectively, in little more than a week, in the latter instance, 19 elementary school children, I feel compelled to share some personal thoughts on guns in our country. Like all of you, I am shocked, disturbed, angry, and sad. We are all praying for the victims, for the families of the victims, and for all those whose lives will forevermore be changed and traumatized. Whether we like it or not, this phenomenon occurs much more frequently in our nation than in any other developed nation, or perhaps any nation. I have never owned a gun. I have held one in my hand on five occasions. I have never fired one. I have lived and or worked for many years, decades actually, in New Haven, Connecticut, the Lower East Side of Detroit, North Philadelphia, Atlanta, and Southeast Raleigh, all of which are some pretty tough neighborhoods and have never felt the need to have a firearm. If people want a gun for sport or for protection slash self-defense, I support that. My ex-wife owned a gun, and I supported that. The Second Amendment to the Constitution, which guarantees our right to bear arms, was written in the late 1700s, when arms were muskets, which could be reloaded every 15 to 20 seconds, perhaps 12 if you were good. Our forefathers could never have imagined military-style assault, automatic, or semi-automatic weapons. Personally, I think something along the lines of a 9mm is sufficient for self-protection. I don't know why someone outside law enforcement or the military would need an AK-47 or an AR-15 for protection purposes. Ninety percent of Americans favor universal background checks while acknowledging that will not prevent all of our mass shootings, obviously, and I am in that number. We have more guns than people in our nation, and more mass shootings, defined as more than three or four people killed, than we have days in the year so far. We are currently averaging 10 mass shootings per week. People say mental health is a root cause of this violence, and I would certainly suspect that it is. However, every other nation on earth has people suffering from mental illness, and no other nation has nearly the same frequency of mass shootings. America has 4% of the world's population and 44% of the world's suicides by guns. Quite simply, we are awash in weaponry. I realize this issue is complex, and I certainly don't have all or even many of the answers. But one thing I do know for certain is, if we don't change anything, this will continue. If we don't change anything, we will continue to lose thousands of innocent people. If we don't change anything, mass shootings will continue at a rate of a few or several per week. Thoughts and prayers are wonderful, but they're not putting the least dent into this horrible cycle of violence. When Peter drew his sword to defend Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane while Jesus was being unjustly arrested, Jesus commanded him to sheathe it. All who take the sword will die by the sword, Jesus said. America has been taking the sword for a long time now, and we see the results weekly. May God have mercy on us. Let us pray. And gracious God, we come to you, our hearts overflowing with thankfulness and praise for who you are and all that you do for us. You have blessed us in ways that we will never even consciously be aware of. Our hearts are also weighed down by many burdens and afflictions, specifically the epidemic of gun violence in our nation. Lord, we may be divided by solutions, but we are certainly united by our concerns none of us likes what we see we ask that you please give us wisdom insight faith and courage to do what we can to change this situation forgive us our stubbornness we thank you for being a god of peace who says blessed are the peacemakers And who commands us to beat our swords into plowshares and beat our spears into pruning hooks. To no longer lift up sword against one another, nor study war anymore. We need you. And we can only do what we need to do by your grace, mercy, and power. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. My sermon text for today is the first lesson, Acts chapter 16, verses 16 through 34. It is a wonderful story. Uh, My sermon title for today references (coughs) verse number 26 therein, when the foundations shake. When the foundations shake. The book of Acts was written in the years A.D. 80 to 90 by Luke, a physician, traveling companion of the Apostle Paul, and the only Gentile author in the Bible. He wrote the gospel, which bears his name as an account of the life of Jesus, the Christ of Nazareth. And he wrote Acts as a follow-up account of the earliest believers and church. Acts is unique and invaluable as the only book of church history in the New Testament, narrating the spread of the gospel or good news of Jesus Christ throughout the Mediterranean or Roman world, largely through the three missionary journeys of Paul and his companions. Today's text finds us in the second such missionary journey. Paul's partner for his first journey was Barnabas. His companions on this second journey include Silas, Timothy, and Luke, among perhaps Others. Paul and his companions have just now entered Europe for the first time, crossing the Aegean Sea and arriving in Philippi, described as a leading city of the province of Macedonia and a Roman colony. Paul will later, of course, write a letter to these new Christians in this city, known obviously as Philippians. Today's text is a justifiably famous and well-known story first thing we see is a deliverance, an exorcism, actually, of a slave girl with a spirit of divination. Evidently, she brought her owners a great deal of money by fortune-telling, the text tells us. Scholars are divided on the details of exactly what happens since her prophecy, though perhaps demonic in origin, does in fact acknowledge the truth. Paul and his companions are indeed slaves of the Most High God who proclaim a way of salvation, as verse 17 says. Paul suffers her utterances for many days, but eventually, becoming annoyed and irritated, casts out her spirits rather simply. I order you, in the name of Jesus Christ, to come out of her. And, of course, the demon flees that very hour. One would think that deliverance was always welcome and that people would publicly rejoice at the outcome, but such is rarely the case in the biblical record, and drama as drama of one sort or another almost inevitably follows. The drama here is financially driven. Paul and Silas are seized and dragged before the authorities. They are eventually stripped, beaten with rods, and flogged because her owners saw that their hope of making money was gone. The ostensible charge in verses 20 and 21 is that they disturb the city by advocating customs that are not lawful for Romans to adopt or observe. But of course, people seem content to ignore them on this account and only act in this way once they lose their business. It is intriguing to me that here and in other places, Ephesus in chapter 19 springs to mind, Christianity seems to be bad for business disrupts the status quo. It begs the question, for me anyway, in our 21st century lives, when is the last time Christianity caused any sort of upheaval here in Raleigh? When is the last time practitioners and devotees of this faith caused unrest over immoral or ill-gotten gains in Wake County? When is the last time the actions born of our Christian faith ruffled feathers and landed us in jail for, quote, unquote, disturbing the city? When is the last time we paid a price for standing on principle, for serving the poor, welcoming the stranger and outcast, feeding the hungry and clothing the naked, for actually loving our neighbors as ourselves and doing unto the least of these as Christ Jesus did unto us. When is the last time who we are and what we believe and practice ruffled some complacent feathers? When is the last time we mattered and mattered greatly, greatly enough to be dealt with and reckoned with? Throughout Acts, my friends, Christianity's arrival in a territory profoundly shakes up The status quo found there such that its proponents were accused in chapter 17, and I quote now, of turning this world upside down and threatened with stonings and beatings and death. Two thousand years later, observes one theologian, the Christian church is most often now the arch supporter of the status quo. Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's silent and often vocal sanction of things as they are. As a reward for their faithfulness, Paul and Silas are severely flogged, thrown into prison, put in the innermost cell with their feet fastened in the stocks, Verse 25 is a poignant and resonant verse. About midnight, the middle of the night, when it is darkest, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. When it's darkest and bleakest, Paul and Silas pray and sing hymns. When it's most depressing depressing and despairing, Paul and Silas somehow manifest hope or joy or courage which belies their circumstances. How many of us, beaten by our life's circumstances, flogged by broken and estranged relationships, fastened in the stocks of sickness, grief, and death, immobilized in the innermost cell of fear, anxiety, And loneliness can say we manifest a similar spirit of praying and singing hymns to God. It is both moving and informative to me that the fellow prisoners are actually listening to them. They didn't have to, but they were. They could have told them to shut up and keep it down. Or angrily drown them out with their own cries of despair or profane songs of revelry. But they don't. Instead, they observe and listen. And that, I believe, determines their own actions in a few short verses. People are watching you, my friends. And they are listening to you, they are watching you as you suffer, seeing how you hold up in adversity. Whether you know it or not, wish it or not, your life is providing witness and testimony of one sort or another as you suffer. How are we suffering as Christians? How are we holding up under trumped up charges of injustice? What are our spirits displaying as we undergo persecution and unfair treatment? I myself have both watched others suffer with grace and equanimity and have been greatly inspired and have suffered myself manifesting the opposite, attitude, temper tantrums, giving up, downcastness, and been disappointed. But the point is, others watch, they observe, and they listen, and they can be buoyed by what they perceive. Even to the point of having their lives transformed. In another deliverance here in the text, verse 26 reports, Suddenly there was an earthquake. So violent that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. Oh, that that might happen today that history might record that a group of followers of Jesus Christ gathered at St. Philip Lutheran Church in Raleigh, North Carolina, all of whom were roughed up, shackled, and imprisoned in various physical and emotional, psychological, financial and spiritual capacities, and that we prayed and sang hymns fervently to God at this hour, heard and received God's word, the sacrament of communion, such that the foundations of our various prisons began to shake. Doors of possibility were suddenly opened and chains of guilt and shame, low self-esteem and despondency were unfastened and that others in our lives saw it all go down. If the deliverance of the slave girl was the first deliverance and the deliverance of Paul, Silas and the prisoners was the second deliverance, there is a third. That of the Philippian jailer himself and subsequently his family. We see a rather miraculous scene next. In response to the earthquake and the release of the prisoners, the jailer draws his sword and intends to commit suicide. Why would he do this? The end of verse 27 says, since he supposed that the prisoners had escaped. Back in verse 23, it reveals that the jailer had received a charge. He was ordered to keep the prisoners securely. Beloved of God, there are few things in life worse than receiving or accepting a charge or a duty and failing to keep it. Breaking a marriage vow not being the parent you thought you should be, being dishonorably discharged from the military, falling off the wagon of sobriety, being corrupt in your line of work, not reciprocating the trust of a good friend, and countless other examples of the way we fail ourselves and others. All these fill us with guilt and shame and lead us toward genuinely feeling We'd just rather not continue in life. What saves this jailer, however, is Paul shouting out, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. What saves this man, who failed to keep his charge, in his case through no personal fault of his own, is that those who could have and should have run away, stayed. Those whose every inch of fiber in their being yearned for liberty stayed put. Can you imagine being loosed from whatever held you in bondage and staying there holding your ground for the sake of someone else? See, I think that is what happened. I think the other prisoners listened to Paul and Silas Praying and singing hymns at midnight in the darkest of circumstances. Saw God vindicate their righteous and hopeful suffering with an earthquake. Saw God release all of them as well as Paul and Silas. Realized that they were the beneficiaries of someone else's suffering and liberation and decided to stay back not to take advantage of their newfound freedom in order to help and bless somebody else, the jailer in this case, the way they themselves had just been helped and blessed. My friends, Paul consistently reminds us throughout 1 Corinthians not to let our liberty cause someone else to struggle and fall. Not to exercise our own God-given, Christ-given freedom if it harms our neighbor in any way. Let no one seek their own good, Paul writes therein, but rather the good of their neighbor. So I believe the fellow prisoners beheld the testimony of Paul and Silas' spirits at midnight that they beheld the overflowing blessing that they themselves participated in and deliberately did not exercise their own God-given freedom in order to help somebody else out. As a result, the jailer refrains from taking his own life, falls down trembling and cries out that immortal utterance, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They answer him just as memorably. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. This scene conjures what Paul will later write to the Romans in the 10th chapter. If you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. For one believes with the heart and so is justified. One confesses with the mouth. And so is saved. The remainder of the text flows naturally and somewhat predictably. They speak the word to him and his family. He washes their wounds. He and his whole family are baptized. They share a meal together. And everyone rejoices that he became a believer in God. Word and sacrament. That is, the word of God and baptism and communion are all over this passage. And it ends the way our worship always ends here each and every week. In rejoicing. What if we went our way today disturbing the status quo of society in a prophetic, Holy Spirit-inspired way? What if we protested injustice and violence and advocated for justice and peace? What if we condemned ill-gotten gain at the expense of enslaving others and supported honest labor which served to build people up? What if we became guilty today of what the earliest Christians were guilty of in chapter 17, turning this world upside down? What if the first truly became last, and the last truly became first? What if the proud were humbled and the humble exalted, and the greatest of all sought to become like a servant? What if we prayed, you and I, and sang hymns to God in the midst of the midnight hour, shackled in our innermost cell? What if our lives gave witness and testimony to others that God is still God, God still rules even in the midst of our sufferings. What if others watching us detected our praise, our smiles, our encouraging words, our joy, and were themselves transformed by encountering us? What if we limited our freedom by staying behind? By helping others, by suffering with them in a true spirit of compassion and by declaring, do not harm yourself, do not harm yourself, for we are all still right here. And what if the whole time we pointed not to ourselves, but to another, not to our own name and power, but to another's? What if we pointed to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who disturbed the peace and the status quo of the city of Jerusalem, who as a result of his teachings and miracles, a result of his crucifixion and then resurrection three days later, himself turned the world upside down, who prayed and who sang himself in the midst of great suffering in Gethsemane and at Calvary, who limited his own freedom and divinity and transcendent pre-existence with God to come down to this earth, become incarnate, truly helping us in our despair, suffering rejection and death right alongside us and telling us similarly, do not despair, do not fear, do not give in, do not harm yourself, for I am here. Oh, I think I feel some foundations beginning to shake. I think I feel a trembling. I think I detect doors beginning to open and shackles beginning to drop. I think I feel lives beginning to be transformed at this very moment in order to help other lives be transformed in the miraculous, liberating, earthquaking name of Jesus. When the foundations shake, when the foundations shake, amen.